Good morning and welcome to a Tuesday morning, June the 14th edition of the Christian Underground News Network. I'm your host, Kurt Chamberlain, along with your co-host, Pastor Dick Chamberlain, and our regular Tuesday morning guest, Dr. J.B. Hickson, who has been uh, kind enough to take some time out of his extremely busy schedule today uh, to sit with us for an hour and talk about a subject that uh, uh, isn't really talked about that much. You don't hear it from pulpits very much anymore. Uh, there's a reason for that. I'm sure there's several reasons for that that we'll probably get into. But uh, it's, it's nonetheless an important subject because whenever, uh, if, if you're an active uh, Christian, born-again Christian, and witnessing to other people as you should, uh, it's a question that often comes up in conversation. Uh, and uh, many people have asked me about it, and I, you know, I, I know basically what to tell them and uh, examples to give them, but I'm not quite the expert that Dr. Hickson is. He's going to give us a little more insight on this, but the subject today is going to be <clears throat> Bible translations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know. You can hear it now, can't you? Doo -doo 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 -doo. Yes, I got cheesy anyway. So, <laughs> sorry about that, guys. But uh, that's what we're going to talk about. There are some good ones, some bad ones, and some just downright ugly, messy. I'm going to use the word crappy oh, translation. Oh. No, I, I have to because they, they are. Uh, but JB... Can you tell us a little bit more about Bible translations, which ones are good, which ones are bad, and which ones are just flat out ugly? Well, yeah, good morning, uh, Curtis and Pastor. Thanks so much for, uh, for having me on, as usual. Always look forward to the Tuesday morning Christian Underground News Network uh, show. And uh, for those listeners who might not have been able to discern your I would say somewhat subpar uh, whistling there. This he was trying to imitate the theme song from Clint Eastwood's movie, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Somewhat uh, subpar, yeah. Yeah, subpar. So uh, don't quit your day job. Uh, uh, but but, uh, but anyway, yeah, uh, Bible translations, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. You know, um, this is a common question that I get and have gotten over 33 years of ministry many times uh, because of the uh, onslaught of English Bible translations. Uh, people tend to have a variety of translations, and any any church or any size uh, group that I am speaking to, uh, chances are there are multiple versions represented among those in attendance. And uh, so people will often come up and say, you know, either what do you recommend, or what is the best, or what, what are the differences. And so I've taught on this for many years, taught it at the uh, academic level on how we got our Bible. Um, we actually do have an eight-part uh, video streaming series on how we got our Bible that kind of walks people through that. But, you know, I thought it was a great suggestion that you had to take uh, one of our podcasts here and just address uh, this issue, maybe a, a, a short primer on the overall uh, topic. So before we get to maybe critiquing and explaining some of the different translations that we have today. I wanted to start uh, by just reminding listeners of uh, the authority and value of God's Word, and um, we need to understand that the Bible was not written in English. 
um, God, the creator of the universe, supernaturally revealed the written word over a period of 1,500 years, starting in around 1446 with the books of Moses during the wilderness wanderings after they left, after the children of Israel left Egypt. And uh, so that's when it really started as God unveiled uh, his plan of the ages through the written word to Moses. Uh, and then it continued and, and didn't end really until um, around 400 or so years before Christ. And that was when the, what we now call the Old Testament had been completely revealed by God. And he used uh, many different human authors to do that. It was originally written in Hebrew, the language of God's chosen people, Israel, uh, and also a short section of the Old Testament uh, late uh, in time was written in Aramaic originally, because during the Babylonian exile, when the children of Israel were carted off to Babylon, that became sort of the common language of, of the day of God's people. Uh, so the Old Testament was written over a period of about a thousand years, starting in 1446 to somewhere in the fifth century, mid-fifth century BC, uh, and written originally in Hebrew and Aramaic. And then you had what is often called the silent years, uh, and which is from the book of Malachi, the, the last Old Testament book, until the coming of Christ at the incarnation, the first advent. Uh, and during that time, there were real really no writing prophets. God was, no, was not at that time unveiling more of his special revelation through the written word. But when Christ burst on the scene, of course, he is the living incarnate word. And uh, John tells us in the beginning was the word, the word was with God and the word was God. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. Um, and uh, he, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter one, that uh, God in these last days, has chosen to reveal himself to us through his son, who is the express image of his glory. Mm -hmm. So uh, Christ uh, came on the scene, and while Christ walked the earth and was uh, ministering for roughly three and a half years, uh, he uh, was the word. He was, you know, everything he spoke, obviously, is divine because he's God. He said, I and my father are one. But then, of course, as we know, uh, Christ was... Uh, crucified to pay the penalty of sin for the whole world on Calvary. He rose again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, as prophesied in the Old Testament, and uh, the pivotal moment of all human history, the, when Christ became the once-for-all sacrifice in, an, in, in the most incredible expression of God's unfailing and unconditional love. And then uh, he ascended uh, 50, uh, 40 days later after the resurrection to the right hand of the throne of God, where he sits today waiting to return at the appointed time to establish the earthly kingdom. And it was after Christ's ascension, uh, 10 days later, in fact, on the day of Pentecost, that uh, God formed the church, which we now uh, are living in today, the church age for the last roughly 2,000 years. And it was during the early days of the church that God once again began to reveal through the written word more of his special revelation to mankind that he wanted us to know. And so we call that the New Testament. And the New Testament was written over a period of about 60 years from roughly the early 40s AD to 95, 96 AD. Uh, and uh, it, it constitutes 27 
books, and it was written in Greek, which was the, the common language of uh, the, the Greco-Roman world at that time. So to summarize, the Bible, as we now call it, is a book uh, that was written over a period of about 1,500 years from start to finish uh, that was written on uh, three different continents uh, by 40 different human authors that were writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit, such that what they revealed is the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy uh, divine word of God. It was written in three different languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek originally. And by the end of the first century AD, we had everything God wanted us to have in written form that tells us about himself. Uh, So I've often said the Bible is God's way of saying, here I am, look at me. It's his self-unveiling. So if you you think of uh, a master sculptor who is uh, uh, hired uh, to create a sculpt of sculpture, and he works on it for months or perhaps years and finally completes the project, and he gathers together his clients and any of their honored and esteemed guests that they want to be there for the unveiling, and everybody gathers around this uh, sculpture that is covered in a tarp, and at the appointed time, the sculpture removes the tarp and says, here it is, and everybody can behold the work of this sculpture. Well, that's really what the Word of God is. It's uh, God's way of unveiling everything He wanted us to know about Himself. Obviously, it tells a story, uh, starting with creation in the book of Genesis, all the way through the fall, corruption, redemption, and God returning and making all things new uh, at the end of uh, the Bible in Revelation. So, uh, obviously, a lot has happened in the 2,000 years since the Bible was complete, and in the early uh, days of the church, uh, or let's just say the early days of the, uh, the second century after the Bible was complete and the church had, had been around about 100 years, uh, they didn't have, obviously, computers or typewriters or digital technology. They didn't have a printing press. They really had the only means of copying and transmitting the truth of the written word of God to others was through scribes. And so you may recall in the, in the Bible, in the, in the Gospels, Jesus often addresses the Jewish scribes. Well, these were Jews who, who's de- who were designated to make copies on scrolls of the Old Testament scriptures. And so they, uh, they would make copies of them. And so we had similar scribes uh, in the church age that would make copies of the New Testament. And they would then circulate these around and people could read them. But, you know, for up until about, uh, you know, the 15th century, 16th centuries, you know, we didn't have, you know, the means of uh, mass duplication. And not only that, but of course, during the Dark Ages, during that thousand years or so period, the medieval times, uh, the layperson under Roman Catholic dominance was highly discouraged from reading the Bible. Uh, Roman Catholicism taught that only the initiated priests uh, were capable of understanding the Bible, and anybody else should not read it. And in fact, at times, 
if if a person was caught reading the Bible, they could be punished severely. Yeah, a lot of times, I know that I've read accounts um, by former priests uh, about the Catholic Church actually uh, going through villages in Europe, collecting Bibles and burning the ones that were owned by parishioners. Oh, absolutely. In fact, in some cases, they would even burn people at the stake for owning a Bible. Yes. Um, so, yeah. you know, no, with no no offense meant to those listeners who may be uh, from a, a Catholic background or maybe even Catholics today, but you need to understand the history of Roman Catholicism. Right. It is a man-made religion that basically created its own set of rules. It has uh, councils and creeds and decrees and and the papacy, which is considered divine. It believes Mary herself is divine, uh, and it has multiple authorities outside of the Bible. So we believe the Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. Uh, Roman Catholicism teaches that's not true. It's one. Uh, there are others. The Pope, when he speaks, is speaking with infallibility. The councils and creeds whichever one is the most recent, you know, carries the weight of, of infallibility, which is kind of nonsensical because many times the councils would contradict previous decisions, kind of like the Supreme court today, clearly they, you know, overrule prior decisions. So they, if it's infallible, then how can they have self-contradicting rulings? Not, Uh, Not very authoritative, is it? No, it's not. And not very consistent. And of course, uh, in Roman Catholicism, they, you know, believe that, you know, the Pope and tradition and the church and the councils and the creeds trump the Bible. So, right. uh, so that's why they didn't have any reason to read it because mm-hmm. it, it wasn't the ultimate authority. But in any event, thinking of the church globally uh, and kind of moving beyond just Roman Catholicism, um, it, it wasn't uh, readily available and widely available to every believer, every Christian, up until you get, you know, into um, the, you know, the, the, the Enlightenment and the time of the printing press. And of course, obviously, the Protestant Reformation did more than anything for that. Um, right. So we're talking today, you know, 2000 years later, and we have this uh, uh, pervasive uh, 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 types of uh, English Bibles. Uh, I mean, literally scores and scores of them. Every time you turn around, some you know New York City publishing company is creating a new Bible. You know, right, the, right. the nurses' Bible, the construction workers' Bible, the firemen's Bible. You yeah. know, stay-at-home moms' Bible, the you know pickleball players' Bible, or you know whatever, <laughs> anything they can do to market to a. Sure. A, an audience that has money and will make purchases. Um, But what we need to understand is that really the English Bible in the grand scheme of church history um, is a fairly novel thing. So of Mm -hmm. course, I think most people know the King James version uh, was one of the earliest English Bibles and quickly became the standard. And that was published in 1611. Right. And interesting story behind that. I don't know that we'll take the time to, to get into all of the details about Erasmus and the, the multiple versions of the Greek manuscripts that he had, which eventually became the basis for the men that King James commissioned to translate the Bible into English, uh, at least the New Testament. Um, 
But in any event, that was God really used the King James version of the Bible in a powerful way to get the truth of, of his word out to generation after generation for several hundred years. Um, but we need to be honest and and intellectually um you know, uh, forthright about the fact that the Bible, the, as we call it, the inspired Word of God, was not written in King James English. That didn't come along until 1611. Mm-hmm. And what did we say? The Bible was started. God first began to unveil himself through the pen of Moses in 1446 BC, yeah. so some 3,000 years earlier. That's right. So, the King James, as valuable as it was in the body of Christ and in spreading the gospel, because it was all we had, um, you know, certainly the if you study the origins of it and some of the decisions that were made, um, there are, for example, uh, certain passages in the English King James Bible that appear nowhere else in any Greek manuscript of the New Testament. Well, that's a problem because if yes. if those certain words or phrases or verses are in fact part of the inspired word of God, then that means that God's word was unavailable to the body of Christ for you know 1500 years from the first century to 1611. Right. And that violates the doctrine of preservation. So it's it's uh it's evident that uh, Erasmus, when he was putting together his Greek manuscript of the New Testament, uh, and of course, what they would do is they, you know, the Bible has a, a miraculous, really supernatural uh, preservation. I mean, we have more uh, extant, meaning uh, in our possession, existing manuscripts and manuscript fragments of the New Testament than any other a book from that era by um, orders of magnitude. So in other words, you know, Thucydides, Tacitus, Euripides, some of the contemporary writers uh, within a few generations of the writing of the New Testament, we might have five manuscripts in existence that we've uncovered archaeologically, or six or 10. We have six to 7,000 manuscript copies of the New Testament dating some of them as old as the second century. So those scribes that we talked about would copy the original manuscript. So, for example, when when God inspired Paul, who was carried along by the Holy Spirit, to write the Book of Romans, well, that you know manuscript written on papyrus, uh, it, it no longer exists. It, it disintegrated, and it's it, it's not like Paul wrote it and then it was quickly you know, grabbed and preserved in a glass case or it wasn't hermetically sealed, hermetically sealed. (laughs) It it was passed around and scribes would copy it. And so by the time Erasmus came around in the, you know, 16th century um, and started compiling his manuscripts of the new Testament, you know, he was looking at a variety of manuscript fragments. And obviously some of them had scribal errors. It doesn't impugn the authority and inspiration of God's word. If a scribe accidentally transposed two letters or accidentally left out a word, we, we, we do the same thing in English. Uh, if I were to, to quote for you, uh, you know, John three sixteen, and I were to say, for God so loved the world that gave his only begotten son and leave out the word he just in my haste, or I'm scribbling on a chalkboard, that in no way impugns the infallibility, inspiration, inerrancy of God's word. It's, it's a human error. 
a scribal error. And so we have the same thing in the Greek manuscripts. So Erasmus put these manuscripts together, and clearly in a few cases, he inserted uh, phrases that were not found anywhere in any of the manuscripts. Um, so my point is, you know, the Bible was not written in English, and I'm not in any way disparaging the King James. As I said, it was a tool of the Lord for several hundred years that God used to promote the truth of his word to others. Um, but what happened is around the turn of the 20th century, so we're talking from the 1800s into the 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, a couple of British uh, scholars named Westcott and Hort began promoting a form of biblical uh, manuscript research called higher criticism. And these men were, were not um, trustworthy. Again, we won't take the time to go into their whole background right. and the fact that they were part of different secret societies and the occult. And, you know, that's beside the point. But just giving you a time frame, it was around that time that, you know, after the printing press had been around for quite a while and uh, English was becoming a prevalent language. And so they, they were key figures, Westcott and Hort. Uh, Bishop Brookfoss Westcott and Fenton John Anthony Hort uh, in, in promulgating the onslaught of English, uh, you know, translations. And so we ended up with a variety of, you know, English Bibles that started out, for example, with in 1901, the American Standard Version, which was really the first one that sort of came out other than the King James Version. Uh, and then, um, you know, we have uh, the Revised Standard Version that came out in the 1940s and 50s. We had uh, the New American Standard. So the American Standard came out in 1901. Yeah. By 1971, the New American Standard uh, Bible came out. And um, so... You know, we, we and then we see, see the NIV and New King James and some others. But um, what has happened is with all of these English Bible translations, especially in the last 50 years, is as academic scholarship has become more liberal. Remember, uh, some of our listeners will know that, you know, the rise of higher criticism around in the early 20th century sort of led to the liberalizing of almost all of our theological institutions and most of our mainline denominations Whoa. so that there was this modernist fundamentalist split in the you know 20s 30s 40s 50s and so forth uh, that where the the line of demarcation was do you believe the bible is inerrant or do you believe it contains errors and the liberals theologically taught that the miracles of scripture were not accurate, that uh, Adam and Eve were just an allegory, uh, Jonah and the whale was just an allegory, or the great fish, I should say, uh, that the parting of the Red Sea didn't really happen, the global flood didn't happen, Jesus is not divine, he wasn't born of a virgin, you know, the deity of Christ came under attack. And so that, you know, as the, the seminaries, uh, you know, for example, Princeton, 
began to become liberal. They put out liberal pastors. The pastors promoted liberal teaching in the pulpits. And, you know, decade after decade, we drifted further away from the truth. So uh, there's always a remnant. And there, there were a remnant of believers and, and solid Bible churches throughout the 20th century that split off from their mainline denominations. We call that the fundamentalist movement. Now, obviously, even the fundamentalist movement had problems of its own over time, and they began to draw lines of distinction that were not rooted in solid biblical truth, but rather personal preferences. And it became yes. about your clothing and your, you know, whether you you know, go to a bowling alley or go to a movie theater or yeah. those types of things. Talking uh, about legalism here. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it became more yeah. legalistic, but it's, it's inception was necessary and commendable, which is we want to reject anyone that says the Bible is not inerrant. Right. And uh, so that's a quick summary, but you know, there's a lot more to it, but in any event, now you fast forward to today and, and really only in the last 120 years since the early 1900s, have we begun to see after out of 2000 years of church history, this major proliferation of English Bible translations. And as you indicated by the title of today's podcast, some of them are good, some of them are bad, and some of them are just downright ugly. Yeah. yeah. uh, You know, I think it's fair. In fact, I think it's necessary for conservative uh, scholars uh, such as myself to point that out. It doesn't mean we're criticizing the Bible, because remember, the Bible wasn't written in English. We're criticizing what fallen mankind has done to undermine the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so today you have, let's start with the ugly, you have gender neutral Bible translations, simply capitulating to the gender surrender movement of our day, which is a demonic attack on the image of God in man. uh, These are not even what I would call Bibles, frankly. Uh, They're liberal slants and commentaries on the Bible that are passing Mm -hmm. themselves off as Bibles. Um, So, and there are other examples of that too. Um, In terms of uh, you know, common translations today that people use. I'd like to take a moment and just sort of give my evaluation of, of those Bibles. Um, so m- most of our listeners probably know that for 30 some odd years now, I have taught from the New King James English Bible. Um, there's a simple reason for that. I believe that the translators who translated the New King James used a superior manuscript evidence to translate from as they scoured the thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament. They, I believe, collected the ones that are the most reliable and accurate, and they translated into English from that. Uh, Secondly, they used a technique of translation that is what's called uh, in the technical world formal equivalency. Uh, Commonly, we refer to that as word for word or literal translation. And as opposed to more dynamic equivalency or uh, thought for thought, idea for idea, or you know, paraphrasing the Greek into a paraphrastic meaning in the English, uh, I don't think that's the way we should translate the Bible. So, for because of its translation technique and because of its manuscripts, that in, in Greek, I think the New King James is is the choice that, I, that makes the most sense. Um, but the biggest consideration 
because most people don't take the time to dive into what manuscripts an English Bible is translating from, even though every English Bible out there, if you look at the front matter, which nobody looks at, they just go straight to Genesis 1-1. But if you look at the front matter, it explains in great detail what manuscripts they translate from and why. Mm -hmm. But uh, nobody really takes the time to look at that. So the biggest consideration that I encourage listeners to, to think about when choosing an English Bible is the translation technique. Um, you know, we want, since the Bible wasn't written in Hebrew, I mean, it wasn't written in English, it was written in Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and most of us don't, aren't fluent in those languages, uh, we want an English translation that's going to be the most consistent with translating word for word as best you can. Yes. Uh, and then we will use our proper rules of uh, interpretation and, and those types of things, um, you know, uh, to, to figure out what it means. Um, when you use a Bible translation that, uh, you know, paraphrases or tries to explain what the Bible means, you're not using a translation per se, you're using a commentary, right? Right. When I'm reading my Bible... I want to know, as best I can, what the writer of Scripture wrote when the Holy Spirit carried him along to write. And I know that it, you know, you know, I could go back and look at the original Greek and the Hebrew, and, and scholars do that. I do that every day when I'm studying and preparing messages. But for an English Bible, I want, I want a translation that as best as possible is going to take what the writer said and put it in English words that I can understand, and then, and then it's my job to figure out what that means. So I, I hope I'm making sense here, Curtis. People need to recognize yeah. the distinction between a translation and an interpretation. Right? right, right. So, for example, if a person doesn't speak English, and let's say I'm speaking and preaching a message, and I'm using a translator, which I've had the opportunity to do this. I preached once for a week in Russia, and I had a Russian translator. Uh, and let's say I use the phrase, uh, you know, this uh, person was driving me up a wall. Well, that's an English idiom that may not, you know, people might not understand what that means. But hopefully my translator will say the equivalent of driving me up a wall, and then he can interject to the Russian audience, which is which means that he was bothered. Frustrating me greatly. Frustrating me greatly, that kind of thing. So, but the point is a translation seeks to simply translate into you know English what the Greek or Hebrew said. Right. And, and then we may in some cases need to look up in a good commentary or a good manners and customs book or a good book of figures of speech like Bullinger's or something. To, to really figure out what that cultural phrase might mean. Um, right. So what has happened as we get more and more translations is scholars today have begun um, blurring the distinction between a translation and an interpretation. So a, a translation, JB, you're saying is, is just a word-for-word substitution of the original product. As much as possible. Now, sometimes, possible. sometimes, especially in Hebrew, uh, there really isn't a word-for-word equivalent, and right. so, and and also in Greek, sometimes one word in Greek is translated with three or four words in English because 
you know, Greek has prefixes and suffixes and things that yeah. are kind of connected. The letters are connected, whereas yes. in English we separate them. Um, uh, and by the way, the same thing is true in other languages like Spanish, you know. Right, right. So you can, you, you know, you translate one Spanish word with two English words, subject and, and verb, for example. Right. So, so a translation much- is basically uh, the, most, the most accurate humanly possible word-for-word substitution from the original and an interpretation is basically somebody's uh, insertion of their own opinion or thought as to what something meant. Correct. So let me give you an actual example, um, you know, of how this comes across in our English Bibles. So Mm -hmm. let's use the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there's a Hebrew idiom uh, uh, that refers to a person's nostrils flaring up. Yes. Yes. Uh, And that is a Hebrew idiom, cultural idiom, that refers to anger. It's a way of expressing anger. So, for example, the Hebrew text might say, the king's nostrils flared. Well, what that means is the king got angry. Well, a modern English Bible that tends to be more paraphrastic is going to, quote, translate that as the king got angry. Mm -hmm. But really what that is is not a translation. That's an interpretation. Yes. That's an explanation, right? We want a a translation. And so I want a Bible that's going to say, you know, the the king's nostrils flare. Yeah. And then I will, it'll be up to me to think, well, what does that mean? Well, I'm going to look it up and I'll figure it out. Um, another example would be in Hebrew, the concept of uh, covering one's feet. Well, the, uh, the King James, I believe I could be wrong on this. I didn't, I'm just speaking off the top of my head here and I didn't take the time to review this, but I'm pretty sure it's the King James translates that as, you know, you know, so Saul went into the cave to cover his feet, for example, and it's used several mm-hmm. times, but that's one example. Well, what does that mean? Well, that's a Hebrew idiom that refers to relieving oneself, you know, what we right. would say today in a euphemistic way, using the restroom, right? right. right. Um, it's a Hebrew idiom, by the way, that comes from the fact that if a, if a Jewish man needed to, quote, use the restroom or relieve himself, he would have to drop his tunic and his robe at his feet and they it would land on the ground so that he was, you know, could take care of his business. And so it would cover his feet. That's where it came. Yeah. So most modern English translations will say, you know, Saul relieved himself or the man went in to relieve himself. And again, that's correct in terms of the meaning. So it's sort of a no harm, no foul translation, but I would still prefer a Bible that's going to say what the text says as close yeah. to as possible, and let me translate it. Uh, so, so let's let's talk about why this matters. I know this we may, may sound like we're getting down into the weeds, but this really does matter because Satan, the great deceiver, I believe, is using modern English translations to lead people astray oh, absolutely. Uh, on the gospel and other important theological terms because they're they're nuancing their translations with a theological slant. Yes. So here's a big example. The uh, NIV uh, does this a lot, by the way. Um, And the NIV also leaves verses out that it doesn't think are part of the original manuscript of Scripture. Um, 
Right. Many of those. And I talk about those in my series, uh, How We Got Our Bible. Philip um, and the eunuch is a great example. That yep. 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 Philip, that's Acts 8, uh, what, 37, I think. Yes. Um, and several others, uh, either entire verses left out. So like if you use an NIV Bible, if you go to Acts 8, 36, and then you look at the next verse, it's, it's Acts 38. 8, 38. It does not have a verse 37. They leave 37 out. Why? Completely. Yeah. And they do that because they are under the impression that that verse is not in the original text of scripture. Uh, I believe it is. The King James and New King James leave that verse in there. Uh, yeah. New American Standard, incidentally, leaves it in, but it puts it in brackets yes. with a note that says, well, this verse is probably not in the real Bible, you know. So those are just some side notes. But in, uh, in, in a key passage that relates to uh, salvation that uh, Calvinists and, and others use to defend their view that a person has to do good works or they're not really saved, is James 2.14. And right. if you read that in the New King James or the King James, it says, What doth it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works, can faith save him? Period. Or question mark. And by the way, grammatically, that phrase in Greek, that question at the end, demands a no answer. So essentially what James is saying is faith cannot save him, can it? That is faith without works. Well, the way the NIV translates this is, what does it profit, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him. It, in, it inserts the word such. Right. That word such is not in the Greek text. No. So because the New King James attempts to be more literal word for word, it correctly translates it, can faith save him? But the right. NIV, which is sort of paraphrasing and sort of telling you what they think it means, says, can such faith save him? And by implication, they're suggesting that James is talking about a fake faith, or what Calvinists call a spurious faith, which that term spurious is not found in Scripture. It's their characterization right. of a certain kind of faith that won't get you to heaven. So right. Calvinists believe that it's not what you believe that saves you. It's how you believe. You have to have the right kind of faith. Right. So in their mind, if your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone as the only one who can save you does not include some level of commitment or pledge of allegiance or promise to obey or promise to forsake all your sins, then it's, it's not good enough. It's not going to get you to heaven. And they incorrectly suggest that James is talking about that fake faith in James 2. So they insert a qualifier before the word faith, and they say they have James asking the question, can such faith save him? Now, many other English Bibles do the same thing. The ESV, very popular translation today. Uh, our listeners need to understand the ESV was a explicitly Calvinistic translation. Oh, yes. Translation team was made up of all Reformed scholars that, that wanted to provide a Bible that had a Calvinistic slant. Um, and if you especially read the ESV study notes, you will find that uh, all of the study notes are, you know, basically a, a, a polemic 
in favor of Calvinism. I mean, Absolutely. just one right after the other. Yeah. But the ESV in James 2.14 says, can that faith save him? Again, inserting the word that. Uh, New American Standard, which is not a Calvinistic Bible, but nevertheless inserts a word here, says, can that faith save him? And as I mentioned, the NIV says, can such faith save him? So um, you want to be careful when studying the Bible to make sure that you choose a translation that as best as possible translates things word for word uh, so that you as the interpreter and the reader are left with the task through the help of the Holy Spirit of properly interpreting the word of God. Right. Uh, you know, when a paraphrastic translation is correct, such as, you know, the king got angry, you know, it, it sort of um, fast tracks the process. It's like a, almost like a Cliff's Notes version of the Bible. It, it right. quickly gets you to the meaning, but, you but know. But it could be considered an oversimplification. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's basically um, giving you meaning when what you want is a translation, and then yes. you want to determine the meaning or discover the meaning. God determines the meaning. It's God's the author, so it's authorial intent. But I want to do what Paul tells us to do, which is to rightly divide the Word of God, to correctly yes. handle the Word of God, and uncover the accurate meaning. I don't want to subcontract that out to my English translator. Yeah, you don't want to subcontract that out to Westcott and Hort. You certainly don't want to subcontract it out to <laughs> Westcott and Hort. So, or to the ESV translators, because I believe, right. as I'm teaching right now on Wednesday nights, that Calvinism has an inaccurate view when it comes right. to the gospel. So, so I just, you know, I believe that we have a duty to correctly handle the Word of God ourselves. We don't want a Cliff's Notes version. We want the word for word. Now, yes. that's a simplification, because even formal equivalent translations like the New King James, the King James, the NASB is a formal translation. In, 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 in all of those, at various times, some they will insert a, a, to smooth out a translation certain words or, or, or give a paraphrase. I think even the New King James translates that Hebrew idiom uh, covering the feet with, you know, relieving oneself. So, right. again, the Bible was not written in English, um, but on the whole... Uh, I think the New King James does the best job of seeking to use contemporary English. Um, mm -hmm. And and by the way, there are key terms in Scripture that every believer needs to know, uh, even though they're not commonly used words in our everyday English. Um, and some modern translations try to do away with those because, oh, they're too complicated. People can't understand it. Um well, the reason they can't understand it is because they're uniquely theological words that God created to tell us something about himself, like right. justification, right. imputation, or propitiation. Sanctification. And sanctification. These are key terms. So yeah. I think, again, this is part of the devil's larger scheme is to sort of wipe those key principles out of Scripture by dumbing mm -hmm. down the Bible. The NIV, it's widely known. I think they even talk about this in the front matter of the of the English Bible, the NIV, that they try to write it at a fifth grade level. Yeah. So, 
If you want to be talked down to and dumbed down, read the NIV. If you want to, you know, be treated like an adult and, you know, sometimes you got to get out your dictionary. Yeah. You know? We, we sure. homeschooled our children. And I can remember many times when the kids were younger and we would read one of the classics uh, novels or literature and, you know, the kids would come across a word, we'd stop, they'd go get a dictionary and they'd look it up. And now they've learned what a new word means, you know, yeah. it's yeah. how you expand your vocabulary and expand your intelligence. So it's not necessarily a good thing that Bible translators are writing a translation that appeals to fifth graders. Um, right. You know, I, I think uh, we need to remember that. So, um, so, you know, but, but the new King James, which has been my preference for many years, I think does a good job of um, sort of updating some of the Elizabethan English um, that yes. is, is, you know, even in common words like thee and thou, you know, by the way, if you go back and look at, and I have a, a leaf from an original 1611 um, King James Version Bible oh, you um, that I bought years ago. Yeah. And it's in a, it's in a plastic covering and I often will pass it around when I'm teaching on this. Uh, you nobody could understand that the words are so archaic that right, right. You, you literally would need a translator to, sure. to understand it. So yeah. even the KJV has undergone revisions through the centuries. Yeah. Um, but somewhere along the way, people who love the KJV, and, and, and certainly that's nothing wrong with that, ha, many of them kind of crossed a line into where they sort of elevated the KJV into some type of divine document that in, in even extreme, extreme KJV only people believe that the translators that King James of England chose to translate the Greek and Hebrew Bibles into English, or at the time it was the Latin Old Testament, Jerome's Vulgate, into English, that they themselves were inspired by God. Well, we know that's there's, not true because yeah, they made mistakes. There's, yeah, there's no biblical, no biblical proof to that, number one, no scriptural proof. And, uh, you know, common sense would dictate that. At, at that point in time, that was not happening. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So, so again, not disparaging the King James. Um, I talk about this in my How We Got Our Bible series. I do uh, take to task the what I call non-intellectual KJV-only crowd that believes, as I just said, that somehow those people in the year 1611 that were working on this project, they themselves were divinely inspired. I, I don't think that's the case at all. Um, and again, you know, for 300 years, it's really all we had as an English Bible, for the most part, widely distributed, and God used it. And, and you know, the Spirit of God is bigger than any, you know, scribal mistake, just like, you right. know, the Spirit of God, when I quote Scripture, even if I misquote it by accident— uh, I mean, that happens all the time. I mean, I just, I'm getting, my brain gets ahead of my voice and I'm, I'm out there and I catch it, you know, all the time. I, uh, you know, I'll give the wrong reference, you know, or something and it's completely by accident, but it's because I'm a fallible human being, but that does not impugn the integrity of the Bible. Um, sure. So all English Bibles have their strengths. I mean, for example, the NIV as a paraphrase is really no different than a commentary. And uh, yes. you know, when we're studying the Bible, sometimes it can be helpful to look at a few commentaries and see what other people say. It doesn't mean they're right, right. but it, by comparison, for comparison purposes, it can be helpful. So I think there's a place for 
paraphrases like, you know, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. Uh, oh, the message. Yeah, that's yeah. It. yeah, the message. You know, again, that's not in my mind. That's not a translation. No, it's, no, it's that's not. A, that's a paraphrase, and it's an it interpretation. You know, but sometimes Eugene Peterson, in his commentary, captures a clever way to say what the Bible is communicating in a paraphrase, the same way we do. So when I get up to preach, Curtis, like all preachers or teachers, if I read a scripture and then I say, "So what Paul is telling us here is blah blah blah." What I'm doing is I'm taking the truth of Scripture and paraphrasing it in a way for people to understand the meaning. Right. So in many ways, Eugene Peterson, that's what he's doing. And sometimes it's a pretty nice way to say it. So I don't generally like to quote Eugene Peterson because it might come across as if I'm validating or supporting him or encouraging or, people right. to go read it. So usually when I do that, I'll just say, one scholar put it this way in summarizing this first. Sure. I'll just leave it anonymous. Um, but you know, I uh, you know, it's certainly the case that uh, you know, even a, a broken clock is right twice a day. So yeah, that's you know, right. We, we don't uh, right. So there's a place. What I'm saying, I guess, is there's a place for paraphrases, right? Um, huh? Okay. In, in essence, you know, that's what Bible teachers are doing when they're explaining, when they're expositing the scripture. Here's what it says. Here's what it means in, in my view. Of course, I always tell people, study it for yourselves. Don't just take my word for it. That's right. But as I employ proper hermeneutics and, and proper rules of Bible study, here's my best understanding of what that verse means. And, yes. um, and so, so many of our, quote, English translations today are, I think, um, you know, skipping a step. They're going straight from oh, yeah. the Greek and Hebrew to yeah. meaning yeah. instead yeah. of going from the Greek and Hebrew to translation. Translation to paraphrase. Yeah. So so anyway, hopefully that uh, that helps. Again, to summarize, uh, I think the best uh, thing to keep in mind when choosing an English Bible for study, you know, to use in your personal study, is to pick one that, you know, as much as possible, seeks to translate with formal equivalence the words of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek into modern English so that we can then use it and study it and, and understand what it means. Okay, so well, now I wonder, JB, if you would not mind, I don't know if you would consider this going out on a limb or not, but in our title for today's podcast, the Bible translations, the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, could you name a few that you consider good? Yeah, so um, I have a, we just finished a series on my midweek service that was multiple weeks long called How to Read and Understand the Bible. And in the last session of that, I made available a sheet of recommended dispensational scholars and commentaries and English translations. And okay. I said on that, which by the way, if anybody would like that, just email me and I'll be happy to send it to you. The oh, PDF. But I said that my first choice would be New King James, second choice would be King James, third choice would be NASB. So those okay. are my, my top three, because all of those, I think, do a really good job of formal equivalence. Um, and really, you know, I would put NASB and King James sort of tied for second, really. Um, you know, they, King James, you're going to have to deal with, again, some of the archaic 
common words that don't need to be archaic. Nothing, right. you know, you don't get any extra years in heaven for speaking in, in Elizabethan English. <laughs> so, um, so, you know, uh, but yeah, I would say those three are recommended. Um, the, that's the good, you know, the bad would be for study. Mm-hmm. And if you're just reading devotionally, or you just, it's more like reading a, like I have a devotional book, uh, weekly words of life, uh, yes. 52 devotionals to warm your heart and strengthen your faith. And each one takes a verse. And then I just elaborate on it and give some anecdotes, some of them humorous, some of them real life stories of experiences that I've had. Uh, it's devotional. It's, it's designed to get people into the word, get them thinking about spiritual principles. So if you're just devotional reading, you know, it can be helpful to read a, a paraphrastic translation like NIV or, um, you know, some of the, uh, the, the New Living translation would be another one that I would say is not good for study. Uh, but then there are some that I would classify, I would really never recommend. And that's uh, the ESV, even though that's hugely popular now, I challenge people to really yeah. look into that and, and, and yeah. understand that it's an agenda driven translation. Um, so I would, that that's, I would put that in that, that would be, you would, we would classify that as the ugly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I'm sure there are more than that, but that that's probably the primarily the, the, what you would consider to be the ugliest of the ugly. Yeah. Only because it's so popular today and um, it just, it makes decisions and translation choices that in my view are, are not, accurate, um, such as the one that I talked about. So um, again, no offense meant to the the scholars that translated it, you know, just like I try not to be personally offensive to Calvinists when I critique it. I just have an honest disagreement with them. If I were a Calvinist, I'd probably use the ESV. You know, people jokingly call it the elect standard version because it's (laughs) so Calvinistic. I've Uh, heard it called that, yeah. yeah. So, um, but uh, you know, yeah, that, that would be my take on it. But w- regardless, you know, we need to get in the word and uh, study to show yourself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. Paul says yeah. the word of God is, uh, is uh, profitable, uh, you know, for uh, training in righteousness, instruction, reproof, and so forth. So um, it's God breathed. It's, it's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Uh, Hebrews says it's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit like joints and marrow, marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So, you know, Howard Hendricks, who I had as a professor, used to say, you know, the Bible is the only book on the planet that when you read it, it's doing something to you. That's right. So, you know, read the Bible, get in the word of God. Yes, there are some English translations that are better than others, but read the Bible and let the Holy Spirit use it to mold and shape you and, and, and help uh, you grow spiritually mature. Amen. Well, I'll tell you what, JB, I, I appreciate you sharing some of these common uh, misconceptions about some translations uh, and sharing some of the pitfalls of some of the others, because there is a lot of confusion out there. And, and as you said, uh, that, that, you know, God is not the author of confusion. No. Satan is. And so a lot of these uh, have come into have come into existence because Satan loves to confuse the body of Christ. He loves to confuse the church and, and create division and schism as much as he can. And um, a lot of these 
paraphrases and translations have the tendency to do that. And uh, so uh, yeah. we have to be careful. If I could elaborate real quick on you know what you said, God is not the author of confusion. Um, we, we it is self-evident uh, that confusion exists, right? I mean, that there, yes, confusion yes. is a reality. It well, is. if God's not behind that, that only leaves one other being, and that's Satan. That's so, right. even though there's not a text that says Satan is the author of confusion, by clear inference, we know that Satan's the author of confusion. By clear and inference, yeah. one of the ways he does that is through uh, this you know, myriad of uh, Bible translations. And, you know, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 tells us that Satan is blinding men's hearts to the gospel. And so I am particularly sensitive to English translations that muddy the waters a little bit when it comes to the purity, clarity, accuracy of the gospel. And so uh, I don't mean to be harsh. Uh, I probably will get a few emails after this podcast and, and maybe... <laughs> Uh, make some people yeah. mad uh, again, nothing personal. Um, and, but I just, I really think that the ESV has some problems. Um, and I encourage you to look into it. Amen. Well, JB, once again, thank you for sharing uh, your wealth of knowledge with us and uh, your expertise and your many years of study. Uh, we, we very, very much appreciate it. And I uh, know our listeners do too. And we, we hope that our listeners found something helpful and useful uh, and and even maybe uh, have found a warning in some of what you were saying uh, about something that they're using possibly as, as a translation or a paraphrase. So thank you so much, JB, for taking time out of your very busy schedule today. I know what you what kind of what you've been up to today, but uh, we thank you for taking the time to be with us again as usual. And uh, we, we look forward to next Tuesday's podcast also. Uh, I'll just let our listeners know right now, we're going to pre-record that, I think, on uh, this Thursday so we can present it on Tuesday because JB is going to, he's a busy guy. He's going to be on the road in conference or at conference, so he, he will not be available. Actually, so to clarify, we, uh, we will be gone next week, but like you said, we're going to go ahead and record a new pod, fresh podcast. Uh, yes. I'm excited about the topic. I look forward to that next Tuesday, but I'm actually not at a speaking engagement. I am taking a trip to celebrate 30 years of blissful marriage with my wonderful Ooh, bride. It's an anniversary Wendy. celebration. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh. We, okay. we, we don't get much time away or alone. We do a lot of travel and yeah. just wonderful times together, but we are going to do everything we can to just shut down, get away and just spend wonderful time. That's together. what I'm talking about, yeah. brother. Good for you. Good for what, you. What a great woman. She put up with you for 30 years. No doubt. I mean, it, <laughs> it's uh, truly, if anybody doesn't believe in miracles, uh, really, it hasn't examined <laughs> our, our marriage. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, okay, well, I'll I tell you what, you enjoy that. I promise not to bother you with any texts of any kind. And, and I, listen, don't let him enjoy his anniversary. Yeah. yeah. All right. But, but we will, we'll still, you know, we'll pre-record something that we can, we can uh, give our listeners who, uh, 
really need need us on Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, we'll give them something on Tuesday, won't we, JB? Absolutely, yeah. And thanks for working around my schedule to uh, get that ready to go for next oh, Tuesday. And our topic, I'll just let people know next Tuesday, one week from today, you can look forward to a podcast on Satan's counterfeits and what the Bible has to say about all the different ways in which Satan counterfeits things that God has meant for good. So we're calling it Satan's counterfeits. Yep. We don't want to miss it. We also don't want to miss uh, this coming Saturday morning with Pastor Dick and Saturday evening with Lucas Doremus. Don't forget to tune in then. Um, so JB, thank you once again. Uh, we look forward to speaking with you again and, and uh, pre-recording on Thursday. And uh, we, we thank you for making yourself available to do that also. And to our listeners, we thank you for joining us today. And until uh, Saturday morning with Pastor Dick, uh, we pray that the Lord will bless you, keep you, and uh, that he'll make his face to shine upon you and whatever you're going through to give you peace. And uh, uh, until then, till Saturday morning, this is the Christian Underground News Network signing off. See you Saturday.